The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and one magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 58 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. If they ever make Barbed Wire 2, I'm ready to play your long-lost twin brother, Rusty Chainlink. I'm Adam. And Michael got confused thinking Top Cow was a prize given out at the local county fair, and he went hunting for old Farmer Silvestri with the 4-H Club. But luckily, we had a fantastic guest scheduled for tonight. Back again to join us is a man who would surely give artist Stephen Platt the shirt off his back and then start flexing in hopes of being selected as the cover model for a profit reboot. It's Gabe from Gabe Loves 90s Comics. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be back on here. Thanks for the invite again. Um, yeah, I would 1000% give Stephen Platt the shirt off my back and flex because I got nothing but veiny muscle arms like on every profit cover there ever was. Profits got big guns and so does Gabe. But, you know, recently on your social media accounts, you've been sharing a lot of comic books that the CGC has sent back to you safely encased in plastic. Many titles from the 90s and before. So I got to ask you about this idea of slabbing your books, right? These collectible comics. What is the appeal of this process for you? Great question. And this is, this is going to be that great divide the same way with, you know, you should open your, your toys or not open your toys. Should you open up your video games to play your video games or not? You know, you can't read your slap comics. So that's always that kind of through line that really separates the community. But I think there is a lot of great legitimate reasons to actually get in your books slapped. And it's not just a monetary kind of thing. Of course, that's, that's helpful and that's always nice. But for me, when I have, let's say, a Fantastic Four number one from Marvel Comics 1961, that's not a book that I'm going to read. I'm not going to read a $30,000, $40,000 comic book. That's craziness. But having it slabbed, you get the idea that when you buy that book slabbed off of eBay or wherever, then you know that that book is the great that it's, it says it's in. There's no dispute. Um, you know, there's no missing pages. You know, there's no like coupons cut out. Nobody blew their nose in it. Um, <laughs> things of that sort. So it's all for me. It's, it's all about the integrity. As we talked about before, when I was on the show previously, I work for Torpedo Comics and I've gone all over the country at conventions, buying large collections. And I, I pride myself in being a fairly good grader. But there's certain things that it's really hard to tell if you're buying a book online. Things like, is it trimmed? Has it been restored? Things of that sort. So that's one of the best reasons for me to get a book slapped is for that idea that it's complete. It hasn't been restored. There hasn't been any kind of funny business on it. Uh, no missing coupons. Things of that sort. But there's always that extra option as well of, hey, this book slapped in this grade is, you know, five times the value than what it is if it's just just raw. And it doesn't always have to be Fantastic Four number one or super crazy expensive grails. But for someone who has 
sentimental value. Like, you know, my first comic book was Ninja Turtles number one. Not the original, of course, but it was like a fifth print that my dad bought me. So that has sentimental value and it's falling apart. So I, I got it graded. So it would stay, in, you know, in, in a preserved environment where it's no longer going to fall apart to pieces because I read it 20,000 times. OK, well, I can see where you're coming from, though, Gabe. I will tell you, there is some experience with this comic book that you are truly denying yourself by slamming it. And that is there is no way you can enjoy that old comic smell, baby. Ooh, breathe it in, that old paper. You know, it'd be nice if they had like a flap or a little slider that could come up so you could at least, you know, take it all in and enjoy the full experience. Like a, like a scratch and sniff label on it. <laughs> yeah. But no, but I think that's great, really, to get your perspective on that, you know, because that's something I'm never going to do. I'm just not going to participate in locking these comics away. And frankly, I'm not going to participate in super collectible comics that I don't happen to already have for some reason. So it's great to uh, understand the reasoning for that. And I think it's very valid. But, you know, you're mailing those comics out to the CGC, hoping they arrive safely. And there was another group of people setting out their mail hoping it would arrive safely in the hands of jim mclaughlin in the magic word section of wizard so gabe it's time that we open up willie lumpkin's mailbag So there seems to be a bit of a trend in the Magic Words column this time around, so I hope that you all will notice it as we go through the letters here. Jim McLaughlin definitely seemed to have something on his mind, but we are going to start out here with a letter, once again, mentioning the bad girl craze. And Gabe, why don't you read that letter for us? Um, So we got, Dear Wizard, this letter is about the whole bad girl trend. You know you're probably tired of it by now. But please bear with me. There are pros and cons to any issue. With this issue, the main pro is the emergence of many female characters having their own titles. The main con is the visual representation of these characters. It's a comic character, female or otherwise. It's supposedly intelligent. And then why choose attire woefully unfit for combat? (laughs) Running, kicking, and fighting in thongs, six-inch heels, and barely their spandex quote-unquote outfits is absurd. I'm aware that comics are not real, but this crosses any line of reason and goes straight to the point of absurdity. So the hilarious thing about this is that when we had my wife, Dr. Kristen, on our Bad Girls special bonus episode, this was also her number one complaint. I thought it was going to be the proportions or the poses or whatever, you know? And her whole thing was, this is not practical. Why would these women choose to wear these outfits? Obviously, they are being designed by people who never wore high heels, etc. So it just cracks me up. We have another female perspective on that. (laughs) everything's gonna fall out right that was great that she was on she that she was a she's a good team sport for dealing dealing with all that it's upsetting that female characters must be well endowed and scantily clad to get their own series this speaks very poorly on a comic uh, reading community i think that women and men should read a well-written comic about a female character regardless of the woman's bra size or costume or lack thereof. As a woman and comic fan, I find this current wave of quote-unquote heroines sad and shameful. True, writers and artists have the right to portray women this way, but that doesn't necessarily mean they should. 
from Mary Jordan. From CompuServe. <laughs> Good old Comp. Get that e-machine super cheap. I just love that, like, it's it's just her screen name is just a bunch of numbers and decimal points. She just took it exactly as they gave it to her when she subscribed. But Jim McLaughlin's response here is kind of fascinating. He says, True. Just because the people involved in the Manhattan Project could make an atomic bomb does not mean they should have. Just because NBC can make a stupid, putrid, one-joke TV show and call it Friends definitely does not mean they should either. So, too, just because comic creators can come up with thong bikinis, compass-drawn breasts, and plots that serve as little more than vehicles to get their female leads naked, that does not necessarily mean they should. Does this speak very poorly of the comic reading community? Probably. But the only thing we can do is wait. People will tire of bad girls and be taken by something else and this too shall pass the only bad girl comics left will be the few that are actually well done let's just hope that whatever the next comic trend or fascination is it's no sillier than the present one so yeah i mean really i mean you know taking a fair response there to her comments but then just laying out friends right just really giving them the business calling it putrid it's kind of a thing like today it seems to be kind of the trend to uh, hate on friends and call it not funny as well but i'm gonna see jim did uh, have a, a reasonable response and it wasn't pretty backhanded or snarky too for this yeah and i think her points were pretty well reasoned as well all right now our last letter here also has some commentary on the state of television entertainment at this time and i think ultimately it ends up showing that jim mclaughlin and our letter writer don't know jack about what the public wants to see so uh why don't we take a read here wizard people one, is it just me or does the real world on MTV suck? Two, why is Iceland green and Greenland ice? <laughs> Good old Eric Bottles from Pearland, Texas. And Jim McLaughlin's response, yep. The very concept of recording someone's every waking moment on videotape when they are fully aware that they are being taped and then calling it real is perhaps the most asinine notion I have yet to hear in my young life. Oh, wait, uh, is this being recorded for posterity? Oh, no, that, that I didn't mean it. No, I really love that suckhole show with all my heart. Honest, that's my real reaction. <laughs> and we don't have to get into the whole Greenland-Iceland explanation there, but it's just so interesting to hear Jim McLaughlin's take on reality TV not knowing that that will to this day become some of the most popular programming that is being projected out there to the world that everybody seems to not be able to get enough of and uh, yeah so it's kind of funny that at this time the real world was the target and yet yeah we are loving it today or just can't look away I guess MTV's turned into nothing but reality TV for a while and hey we got Judd Winnick who came out of a uh, real world too as well. Yeah, Judd Winnick, but we also got Sarah, who was the editor on Gen 13. And That's that right. was huge for me at the time because, you know, obviously my fandom for Gen 13 is well documented, but I remember reading in their letters column she was going to be on that show and I'd only sporadically tuned in. And then she's in Real World Miami and I watched that entire season because I wanted to see like, oh, you know, what's she going to drop, you know, for information on the comic book? It was awesome. 
Didn't they have like a party with her like going on the show and you have like Jim Lee in the background? I know it was something to do with the Wildstorm office too, I think. I vaguely remember something like that, but I know for me mainly it was just seeing like she would wear Gen 13 t-shirts on the show and then she'd always be at a computer and you would see like images from the comic where she was actually doing her work, which was cool. But I just find it hilarious that there is this theme this month that just Jim McLaughlin is not satisfied with the state of television, the state of entertainment in general. <laughs> yeah, wait till you get social media and everybody's a, a reality star. Yeah, but you know, here's the thing. Sometimes when you turn on the tube, you don't want to watch sitcoms. You don't want to watch reality TV. You want the headlines. You want information. Maybe some of that infotainment. So it's time that we bring up... So our top story tonight, Jim Lee is returning to draw his first image comic, Wildcats, starting with issue 31. And not only that, Alan Moore is writing it. Well, to be fair, Alan Moore was already writing the series, which is actually the reason for Lee's return. Says the fan-favorite artist, quote, Part of my desire to work on the book again was that I liked the direction Alan was going. I just want to come along for the ride and have some fun. So I actually picked up these books recently in a back issue bin, and I have been reading them. I, I wasn't really filled in on what was going on in the world of Wildcats at this point, but they're just like in this cityscape, and they're kind of going all over where there's all these different battles happening. But the one that interested me most was that there is this fight with Overtkill, who people heard me sing the praises of at our Spawn special recently, but he was battling this gal who is named Maxine. I believe that she is Zealot's younger sister, but she's like a cyberpunk with like literal like cybernetic parts and she's got a mohawk and all this stuff, but she's fighting Overtkill and she's kind of like an anarchist. She's a little bit of a, you know, a punk, like I said. So she is really in awe of Overtkill and all the destruction he causes. And basically they just start flirting during the fight and they set up a date. Like that was so entertaining to me. The rest of the comic I've totally forgotten, but that stood out. Now, obviously the big selling point of this is that Jim Lee is returning to draw Wildcats, but honestly, what he's contributing is covers and then a few interior pages and then it is spread out between different artists. Like, oh, you know, here's Pat Lee doing a few pages. Here's Travis Charest doing a few pages. You know, so it's not necessarily a, a full Jim Lee book. So I'm just curious for you, Gabe, at this time, were you interested in Wildcats or did this bring you back to the book? I actually, same as you, I recently got these issues not that long ago, too, off of my uh, my secret comic book buying website. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but, yeah, I, I flipped through it, and, yeah, you're right. Jim Lee just, he he promises a lot here, but, he like you said, he only shows up for, like, 30% of the books at, at most. But, yeah, great stuff. I loved it. I think it was issue 25 that had that really cool foil cover, and I really enjoyed the Mr. Majestic character in those storylines as well. Yeah, a character I actually don't know that much about. But uh, what's also interesting is they are teasing the X-Men Wildcats crossover book that's slated for a future release. And I also picked up the first issue of that at this same uh, back issue bin that I was digging around in. And it's interesting because on social media recently, uh, I posted an ad for that and kind of asked all of you out there, like, were you disappointed when you opened the book and you realized it wasn't a Jim Lee drawn X-Men story? But when I was in 
informed of as well. Jim Lee did one of the books and Travis Charade did the other book and so on and so forth. So uh, people said that they liked Travis's art so much that they were not disappointed that it was not Jim Lee. It was just like, oh, here's a new revelation. People were very excited about this great artist on the scene. But uh, the other thing that they mention is a book called Wild Core that is in development, which is a brand new team of Wildcats related adventurers. Uh, have you ever heard of Wild Core, Gabe? No, I didn't know that if that even came out or not. Yeah, I did look it up to see if there were physical copies for sale on eBay, and it did exist. There were several issues published, and it looks like Zealot is on the team. I think it's kind of like X-Force for Wildcats. Oh, it's kind of like their own hit squad kind of thing? Yeah, although they already are covert action teams, so I don't know. But yeah, it's something where I think that uh, Jim Lee actually would eventually release the things he promised. You know, maybe some of the other image founders would promote things, get a little overzealous about what their ambition was and didn't quite follow through but jim ultimately would do that for us so yeah he tried his best (laughs) yeah but uh what's our next story here gabe next up downsizing ultraverse gets a facelift reports on the last attempt by marvel to make the recently purchased malibu universe a marketable imprint the biggest change is keith giffen and humberto ramos taking over prime confusingly The editor, Mark Panacea, states, we want a reader to pick up these books and have fun with them and not have to worry about a plot line that started five or six years ago. Uh, For the record, the Ultraverse is only three years old at this point, having launched back in 1993. No wonder the Ultraverse bombed in this attempt, right? Because you got an editor who doesn't even know the history. He doesn't know how old this universe is, but we're going to fix it. We're going to clean up that continuity. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not familiar with it. This is a good time to plug your uh, your recent episode that you did with uh, Dave, who was the co-founder of Malibu and Ultraverse, which was a great show. I'm just giving you some love on that. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, that was honestly, that was all Chris Bailey at Charlton underscore hero putting that together. But so many interesting stories, especially kind of hearing the other side of the launch of Image Comics, like just from the publishing perspective, you know, of what they were trying to accomplish there and what complications might have been a part of it. He's just hanging out in his trailer and like lizards are falling through the skylight (laughs) on, you know, on Tom Mason's desk and, you know, now they were just kind of just taking on whatever imprints they can and, you know, oh, or even the uh, Street Fighter kind of controversy. Yeah, lost that license, but it was interesting that they were able to hang on to Mortal Kombat. I actually saw two issues of this like Goro Prince of Darkness series that they published at one point. So yeah, interesting, interesting history from Malibu comics. But, you know, let's get into a few quick hits here. Uh, The Buzzbox reports that a Star Trek X-Men crossover comic is in the works, which will involve Mark Silvestri on art and Scott Lobdell as the writer. Originally, they were saying that they had reported that Chris Claremont was going to write it. Now, I actually also was able to read this recently, and what it ultimately comes out to is very similar to the uh, Wildcats with Jim Lee is it's a jam book with basically every other page is drawn by a different art team so Sylvester is just one of 
many artists involved. And it was an okay story. Like, I thought it was coherent and everything, but it was just kind of jarring. Like, each page is like, oh, somebody else drawing the original Star Trek crew. It was kind of weird that way. You can actually hear me talk a little bit more in detail about that on the Trekology podcast. My friend Jeff has a Star Trek podcast, which is a little something different. And we were talking all about the holodecks and other things. And uh, as we were getting updated on what I was involved in the world of Star Trek, uh, I brought up that I had read that comic finally. So if you're interested, check out Trekology. Uh, It's on Twitter at Trek underscore ology. But another crossover comics project announced here, Acclaimed Comics and Marvel Comics are announcing an Exo Manowar Iron Man two-part crossover series called Heavy Metal, which is something that I've wanted to read for years, and I finally found one of the issues in a back issue bin. Do you remember this, Gabe? Do you remember the video game and the, or the comic? I knew it from the video game. Um, I think it was a, it was Sega Saturn. I remember playing that with my friend. It was that, and then we might talk about it a little bit later, but Scud. All these really kind of wonky, kind of really cool comic book ideas ended up becoming video games on the Sega Saturn. I remember it from there, but I didn't know it was an actual comic. I was remember looking at the video game going, how do these two even kind of cross over and make these paths kind of cross? Yeah. Yeah, maybe we'll fill you in on a future mini episode. Uh, but the last thing here that we have for these quick hits is a Wizard Online poll where they were asking their America Online subscribers which recent replacement hero they preferred. You know, which, you know, long-standing hero had died or retired or been replaced in some way by a new version. And Kyle Rayner, maybe not surprisingly, won the poll with 57%, while the new teen Iron Man got 20 seven percent that actually really surprised me yeah, that's weird uh but also ben riley as spidey scored just 10 percent and connor hawk taking over for oliver queen yes he was eventually revealed to be his son i believe barely registered with just six percent but that might have been just because he was the newest so maybe there wasn't the familiarity there but gabe do you have a favorite replacement hero from comics history that you could think of this is a time where they did this a lot, a lot. So I, I'm, Kyle Rayner is my Green Lantern. He's one of my favorite. But I think another great one um, that I would stick with is uh, Eric Masterson Ooh, taking over as Thor and then later becoming Thunderstrike, which was this great series. Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, just a great, great series. I think it's only like 18 issues, but it's just it's it's him. He's in the Avengers and he's disguising himself as Thor and you're reading it and people are realizing like this ain't the same Thor. Like he acts different, he looks different, he has a big beard and he got like this cool metal helmet. But this is just a time where everybody was being replaced. Green Lantern, Ghost Rider with Danny Ketch, Batman got replaced with uh, Azrael Batman. So all of those things were, were really what really drove my love for comics. But Thunderstrike, Eric Masterson, that's the best one next to Kyle Rayner for me. Yeah, that's great. Um, You know, for mine, I was thinking, you know, I'm kind of a broken record on this, but I feel like just because the original incarnation was really goofy looking and maybe not even well regarded that much, uh, the Joe Quesada redesign of the Ray for the 90s, I just thought was so cool and the character was much more interesting. Well, he had that cool leather jacket too. Yeah, I mean, it was awesome looking. The helmet that he eventually started wearing was very cool. 
cool as well. It kind of a Rocketeer vibe a little bit there. But also he and Kyle Rayner teamed up. I had a comic that I really enjoyed where they had an adventure together. So yeah, I mean, that I think that would be the one for me that definitely, at least in this era, I would have pointed to and said, oh, that was so cool. Now, why don't you give us the next story here, Gabe? Yeah, we'll close out tonight with two bits of bat news. Batman group editor Denny O'Neill, uh, rest in peace, declares no more crossovers in the Bat books. And he quotes here and says, for at least a year, every story will be complete in the title it begins in. None will run more than three consecutive issues. And while we're at it, we'll give you at least one single story issue each month. We will still have a variety of stories, two-parters, three-parters, whatever seems appropriate. But every story will begin and end in the title in which it begins, which is, I think they really did do that. And that was a great time for comics in general. Do you think this is how comics should be produced? Or do you like the uh, multi-title crossovers? Yeah, I'm definitely on record as being a fan of self-contained stories or very short arcs. Uh, I, not even in the 90s did I participate in, you know, the multi-book crossovers uh, at any... I, like, I'm, I'm really hard-pressed to think of any time I went... I think there were a few, like, Spider-Man ones, but they were just, like, some annuals. And I was like, okay, I could buy, like, three or four annuals and get a full story. But, like, yeah, for me, it just has to do with if I'm buying a book, it's because I like that creative team. I like the writing or an artist. So then if you're telling another side of that story or a continuation of that story with a creative team I'm not familiar with and it doesn't sell me on them, then it's just a waste of time for me. So I definitely uh, would prefer just to say, no, they have a good story to tell. Let this team tell the story, but do it concisely. You know, do it in just a few issues. Don't make it a crazy, sprawling, complete universe involvement there. I'm the same way. I don't mind the two, three, four. I don't care how many cross, how many issues it is in the storyline. I like it where if it is like a four part, five part, six part story, where at least each issue is complete, has a complete story at least, or something happens where the move, the story is at least moved uh, and is progressing throughout the the issues. And each issue has its own kind of complete story. But I'm currently reading through some Fantastic Four uh, epic collections from Tom DeFalco and uh, um, Paul Ryan era. And it runs into that situation a lot, too, where I'm reading through long run of Fantastic Four. This is great. This is great. And then, boom, there's this random, like, three, four part issue that runs into with Namor. And it's just like, I don't even care. This is a trade paperback I got. And I'll end up skipping those issues. A lot of my collection is stuff like Spider-Man, and it's a run of Spider-Man. Just went through like 25, but there's any crossovers? Ah, sorry, too bad. I just read, same way as you were saying, I just kind of followed the, the, the creative team and the title that I like. I hate having a crossover and force myself to read a book, and then I have this, this two or three random issues of a title that I'm never going to read again or even continue with. So I, I'm in the same boat as you. Give me something that's concise. Give me something that's within that title and make that something special so excellent choice there denny o'neill we like you all the more finally it's reported that david copperfield won a batmobile from the 1989 tim burton batman film in an auction for a hundred and eighty nine thousand five hundred dollars well why couldn't he just make it disappear and show up back in his house uh, <laughs> but did his bidding uh, anonymously he was later outed by gossip columnist Liz Smith and was interviewed by Time Magazine explaining, 
I live in a bat cave now, so I might as well have myself a Batmobile. I live in a bat cave? I don't know what that means. Does he have a mansion and he built an underground lair? That's scary and creepy and cool all wrapped into one. <laughs> uh, if, if you could own a fictional vehicle, um, Adam, which one would you be going for? Oh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, some of those are just out of the realm of possibility. Like, I'd love to have a light cycle from Tron because that oh, just yeah. looks cool. You zip it around the streets on that, you know? But I think just for, like, real-world application, I would have to go with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles party van. Because just think about it, like, from the perspective of all the entertainment uh, that you could jam into there, you know, Donatello is going to hook you up, he's going to pimp your ride, you know? If I had to settle for the, you know, the VW van from the movie, I would take that too. But I'm talking more about, like, the cartoon series, you know, it has the platform that pops out, it can launch you out of the car. I mean, I just feel like that would be a really fun vehicle to own oh man that's awesome i think i might have to go with the good old back to the future and i don't mean the delorean i still would love to have myself a hoverboard oh yeah i think that is still something that we are missing out and we're always counting down the years we're like well back to the future was you know 2015 and they had hoverboards and you know we're still stuck here without hoverboards so i think that even if it's pink and cool with the mattel logo i would prefer that too but i would definitely be down for a hoverboard well it sounds like we would have a fun time just cruising down the street together but i think it's time we cruise on into our table of contents Now, issue 58 of Wizard with a June 1996 cover date featured an X-Men cover by Joe Matarera starring Cyclops and Gambit. And, you know, usually there's like a great story behind things, but here's what Wizard had to say in their big book of covers. Wizard doesn't decide what characters grace the cover or who draws it. The fans do. Based on the individual issue sales and fan feedback, we respond accordingly. The result? X-Men. And lots of them. This marks our 16th cover featuring characters for Marvel's mutant team. More than any other other character or team at the time and you better believe that that continues on in the years to come but uh this issue was polybagged with a chromium fairchild from gen 13 trading card and an america online subscription disc plus it offered inside for an eventual and half issue because that character was getting her own ongoing series at this point it should be mentioned that the polybag text also promises an interview with drew hayes the creator of poison elves which is not featured in this issue or the next i just feel like there's got to be a story there like he didn't show up for the interview or he declined ultimately and they thought you know they were going to get that in there so i don't know where that ends up but uh no drew hayes this time around one of the things that's super fun though is there's an exclusive milk and cheese comic strip by evan dorkin that garib sheamus was very excited about in his editorial letter he basically claims that it was solicited due to an overwhelmingly positive response to the milk and cheese board game that was packed into issue 54 of course on the flip side of that was the madman by mike allred game and you could order those special dice there's just a really funny point in there where milk and cheese are like let's go increase our sales the stupid way We're going to buy all of our own books to increase our sales. Yeah, and I mean, it was just a fun thing when Wizard would do that and give you a few pages of actual comics. Of course, later in the 2000s, that would happen a lot more. Uh, But here it was still a special treat. And in this case, you know, specially commissioned, not just a preview page or something like that. 
So the next little piece of fun that Wizard included here is a vertical two-page guide on how to spot a comic geek. What you need to know to avoid the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. And yes, you have to actually turn the magazine. It's kind of like a centerfold, maybe the least attractive centerfold ever published. <laughs> and uh, it's basically like a breakdown of this character who looks like the ultimate geek. And it kind of points out the different parts of the uh, costume, I, I guess you would say, of the the outfit and then also the fun thing that I was able to figure out about this is I reached out to former editor of Wizard Brian Cunningham and I said, who was this model? Who is this guy you guys dressed up as the Ultimate Geek? Was it a staffer? Was it somebody's brother? Like, what was going on here? And he's like, nope, that is none other than a friend of the show, Buddy Scalera, decked out in all his geeky glory. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so these days, Buddy is in charge of the comic book school, but at this time, he was uh, in charge of of Wizards online presence on America Online and also contributing quite a few articles and news bits to the magazine. So the fact that they got him to dress up as the ultimate 90s comics geek is pretty funny. Oh yeah, they drew on pimples and they, they really gave him like a short shirt so his belly's hanging out the bottom of it. Very, very 90s stereotypical nerd. But Gabe, I gotta ask you, which part of this cracked you up the most? Uh, I just like the idea of, of him having the hand cart with all of his comic books on it that he takes to conventions because I've seen those guys throughout all the conventions I've been to and uh, they are the worst. I still have a hard time believing that is a thing. You know, I've only been to a handful of conventions in my life, but they were all so packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder people. I can't imagine somebody carting that around, but also just being so clueless as to think it's okay to expect that of the artist who signed 50 copies of their work, you know, and that you would think that 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 is acceptable to take up that much time away from other fans. Yeah, it's just, you know, they kind of just pack mule everything in. So they say like they got, a, you know, two or three long boxes of books and they want all of it signed. So they're just going instead of like making trips, you know, like I, I get a lot of books signed too at conventions, but I'll make a trip where I say, all right, I'll bring down whatever my backpack can hold, get it signed, go back, reload and do it all over again, as opposed to being that guy who is just cracking everybody's ankles with their hand cart and stuff like that. For me, it is definitely the fact that he is wearing a comic book t-shirt and a flannel over it. As they mentioned here, comic t-shirt, nothing, and we mean nothing, impresses a babe like a fella sporting a Batman t-shirt. No, sir. Then regarding the flannel, in fact, that Batman t-shirt's so impressive, why ever wear anything else? Just play it smart and cover up any bodily excretion stains. <laughs> so as a rather large comics fan myself in 1996... I definitely was wearing a lot of flannel shirts over my t-shirts for that exact reason. You know, you can't see my sweaty armpits through a flannel. And it was a four-man function because it was fashion, but I had also hit my man boobs. So I always appreciated a flannel. <laughs> you can't sweat through a uh, flannel. Yeah, I like the whole Adam kit too. That's always great fun. Other than watching X-Files, the only real fun thing to do on a Friday night. <laughs> there's, a, there's even a copy of Wizard that is shoved into his sock to carry around his reading material, which is great. But yeah, we'll definitely post this to social media so you guys can take it in and Buddy Scalera can lower his head in shame and say, why did I agree to this? <laughs> Let me ask you this. As we're on this topic, Adam, because we both wear glasses and I'm sure we noticed people. I've never known anybody in my life who's ever had to tape their glasses together. Like that stereotypical nerd. 
ideal to have here like this. Yeah, well, I mean, I've never actually tried to repair my glasses that way. I've only ever done it when I was actually creating a nerd costume, and I specifically put some tape in that area to make it look like glasses that a nerd would wear. But no, never a real-world application for me. But something maybe only nerds would know about here, Gabe. I'm very curious to find out if you have ever heard of any of these books, because First Look Matrix is not a preview of the Keanu Reeves film, even though it sounds that way. No, it was a few years off still. But rather, it is a peek at the new DC comic science fiction imprint that was launching in July of 1996. Kind of think Vertigo, but with a science fiction focus. So some of the titles include Cyberella by Howard Chaikin, a about a woman out for revenge after being terrorized in virtual reality. Gemini Blood by Christopher Hins and Tommy Lee Edwards, which deals with, quote, genetically engineered assassins that have two bodies to work with? Huh? Like, I, I don't get that. Is it an Avatar situation? I'm not sure. Vermilion contains the ongoing adventures of an interplanetary thief by Lucius Shepard and Al Davison. Bloody Mary by Garth Ennis and Carlos Esquera about an assassin dressed as a nun this one is really cool looking like that that nun is hard-boiled like she has seen some stuff the art kind of has like a peter chung eon flux style look to it a little bit yeah i I could definitely see that but there's something really cool about a nun holding this giant pistol and if it's written by garth ennis um i could only imagine it's gonna be pretty extreme stuff So we've also got here The Black Lamb by Tim Truman about a vampire that hunts vampire hunters. You got that? Pay attention there. Time Breakers by Rachel Pollack and Chris Weston about a group that creates time paradoxes to ensure humanity's survival. So it feels kind of like a reverse Loki concept. And finally, Brain Banks by Elaine Lee and Temujin about human organs being grown inside animals with some animals growing human brains. I've never seen any of these books in a quarter bin even. So I have to ask you, Gabe, what about you? Matrix comics? None of these I've ever seen before. I think the only time I ever seen this is probably when I first read this. And then when I read through this again for, for the show, I'm really impressed by just the artwork on these. But I've never seen these come across. But I'm really pretty interested in uh, the Bloody Mary because it's a Garth Ennis and that's a really cool looking nun with the gun. And um, the Black Lamb, that's just the artwork. This really cool painted looking vampire hunter who has a button on his uniform that's a, a bleeding heart they just these look cool if i saw them in a quarter bin or something like that i would definitely pick them up but i've never tripped over these yeah i mean i just have to believe that they were under ordered that just they, not very many existed on the comic book shelves although i have to say if there's anybody listening out there if you're like a garth ennis completist or a tim truman completist or something and you pick these up and you have a review let us know we'd love to hear about it on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter or at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram because it just feels like an anomaly, like a, a swing and a miss by DC Comics. I gotta say for me though, if I was gonna pick up any of these, if I just got lucky enough to find them, it would probably be that brain banks because yeah, I want to find out about animals growing human organs, you know, a cow with a human brain. Ugh. 
But going from forgotten and obscure to something everybody knows about, I'm sure, had to be DC Comics' biggest release in 1996, Judgment Days, yet another article about Kingdom Come by Alex Ross and Mark Wade, with the pair explaining that Ross originally provided a 40-page story proposal to DC in 1994, and then they passed it on to Mark Wade for consideration in writing the book, and then the two hashed out the finer points of the story together over the last few years. One of the bigger fights, they admit, though was over the inclusion of the Martian Manhunter character who Alex Ross had no affinity for and thought was too powerful to include in these battles. And so the two actually admit to fighting like cats and dogs to find a small role for the character that was not action-based. I'll be honest, I don't even remember the Martian Manhunter in Kingdom Come. Do you? I, I don't remember. I'm going to have to reread it again. I got the absolute, but um, I just like the idea that they're being so candid. That, yeah, you know, we work well together. But we were fighting mad over the importance of Martian Manhunter that uh, wasn't here. I think it said Alex Ross wasn't familiar with them because he wasn't in like the uh, the cartoon series Super Friends or anything like that. Yeah, his point of reference for everything, it seems. So Ross also states that in the process of figuring out the story, he claims to have redesigned, quote, just about everybody who has had any nominal importance in DC's history. With Mark Wade adding, quote, we don't want to disappoint anyone, but with 900 superheroes walking around you can't give them all speaking parts or it becomes a cacophony and there are a lot of characters that is for short especially just even on the covers Oh, yeah. It's every character there is. It's, it's, it's amazing looking stuff by Alex Ross. Now, on a recent episode where we were talking Kingdom Come, Michael actually mentioned an affinity for a particular character design that Ross is uh, discussing here. He says, Ross has a soft spot for Nightstar, the daughter of Nightwing and Starfire. Not only did he create a heroine who could exist in current continuity, but he based her on a design he originated when he was 11 years old. Quote, her look flowed out of those memories, and it made sense to use them here, he explains. She has roots about own personal history. He was reluctant to give her to the DC Universe, he admits, quote, but I came to terms with the fact that most of the stuff I created when I was a kid was really derivative. I realized that I could use this without leaving a personal piece of me behind. So just kind of an interesting behind-the-scenes look at that character that made an impact on one of us. And regarding the main storyline of Superman retreating from the world, returning with an army of veteran heroes, Wade explains his take on the superpowered Kansas farm boy. Quote, he's not really a world leader and he doesn't think in that scope. He's not stupid, but he becomes frustrated because there's nothing to punch. Superman is a smart man, but he's not a clever man. Which I think is interesting because, you know, he's basically giving the distinction that Superman is smart, but Batman is clever is what he goes on to say. Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense, I think. In a similar vein, Wade actually also explains the difficulty of writing Wonder Woman to the story because, quote, As a kid, I just couldn't understand her. She preaches peace and love, but she goes around punching people. <laughs> Which I think is just funny because he seems to have that for everybody, right? It's like, do you see heroes? They just want to punch people. And that's interesting, though, that he couldn't, he couldn't get a grasp on her at first. Like, he really had to kind of dig in to kind of make her work. Well, and apparently he was also having a hard time getting a grasp on the ending because it's revealed that the final issue isn't even done yet at the time of this interview says wade quote i have it all in my head but it's not on paper yet which ross apparently is fine with because quote painting fight scenes with hundreds of characters takes a lot more time than a normal page yeah no kidding so gabe i have to ask then do you have a favorite scene or moment or concept from kingdom come just something that you really enjoy about that story okay so besides a really 
awesome redesign uh, Alex Ross did on Green Lantern. I really love that cool, like almost Wizard of Oz, Emerald City look kind of suit and design that he has for him. It's really great. I, I kind of don't want to be too spoilery of things, but the, uh, the the Shazam, the Captain oh, yeah, Marvel definitely. stuff that happens, and I think it's the last issue, is that's some incredible, incredible stuff. He really just nails that character the fight scene, just the uh, the impact and the gravitas needed for that. And that's just some of the best parts of that series for me. Yeah, that was definitely on my list. Also, I did enjoy the concept of Batman being crippled by years of crime fighting because he's only human. So he has to build these bat robots to police Gotham. Like, that's cool. But I think my number one favorite thing that always just brings me so much joy when I go back and read Kingdom Come is the Planet Hollywood style restaurant where they have all the memorabilia of the different heroes and original costumes and all the serving staff. They all dress up like the characters. Like... I mean, I got to go to the Marvel Media restaurant, but if this type of restaurant for DC existed, I would have enjoyed it just as much. When I was reading that book, I remember that scene. It made me think of Marvel Mania because I was like, oh, how cool would it be to have this like superhero comic book restaurant? You know, like, I really wanted to go and have some of that archangel hair pasta and stuff like that but i never i never got the chance switching over to marvel this next feature you can't handle the truth is a rundown of all the unresolved plots in the x-men books over the last 10 years with mostly cryptic answers from the former x-men editor now marvel editor-in-chief bob harris so they're asking questions like who is the x trader will rogue and gambit ever live happily ever after wolverine's true origin will the truth ever be told so we do get answers to a lot of those but among them was the bizarre question that went back to the 80s where wizard is asking quote the x-men became invisible to all electronic sensors in the fall of the mutants whatever happened to that to which harris responds eh, we kind of let that drop over time i was just hoping someone would write in and explain it so they could get a no prize i was working with jim lee and scott lubdell on the x-men it actually had an explanation but it never saw print so that's just hilarious to me there's just kind of like Man, we thought she'd forget about it you know we just we didn't need it as a plot point anymore that was such a deep cut nerd question too you know that's so great this is one of my favorite articles from this issue i think just because of hindsight like where we are now, 2020, you look back and you're like, ah, nope, that didn't quite happen that way. And nope, that's not true. Or, and even looking back, we were talking about, will we ever get Wolverine's origin? They're like, well, we just did uh, Weapon X in Marvel Comics Presents. I'm like, wow, that was not that long ago when this came out. So that's all right then and there. You realize you get, you know, we do get origin. We do get who the X Trader is. The third Summer's brother, you know, that, that turned into a whole weird convoluted situation with that. But just kind of see where they were kind of, Bob Harris was actually laying down the breadcrumbs of what was going on and Wizard had their predictions and just where it came from and where it didn't come from and, you know, where we landed with it today. That's the fun part about reading these old Wizard magazines is like, okay, where are we now and how did this stuff really come to pass? Now, a bit of comedy and possibly commentary that Wizard is adding to the mix here is what's called a create-a-plot chart. It's very similar to what they did in How to Create a 90s Superhero, but they explain here, how hard is it writing for the best-selling line of comics on the planet? Actually, not too tough. In fact, we can teach you to do it in five easy steps. First, just take one plot device at random from the first category and link it to the plot device from the next category, then to the next, and so on. It's super easy, and hey, the pay is great. 
great. So what we have here is we have a chart that is five different colors and each one is a different plot twist and, you know, the beginning and the ending and all those things. So we are going to take turns jumping through here and reading and uh, seeing what type of plot we create. So Gabe, take it away. Explosive splash page. This dude with uh, Professor X sits with one arm in the toilet after trying to get from the crapper to his wheelchair when a sudden telepathic message exposes that dot 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 surprising plot twist bishop just ate his body weight in mentos and can't stop giggling like a schoolgirl. will he fall prey to baffling fight scene the team's evil time traveling future selves from a hellish reality where people like the spider clone and water world <laughs> Uh, foreboding subplot development. Meanwhile, the blob explodes after eating his 113th fish taco, sending his colon hurtling across time and space. Climactic cliffhanger ending, smacking John Byrne in the back of the head and making him swallow his gum. Now he's really pissed and double swears to never work for Marvel again. <laughs> Quite a story we came up with there, but we're going to post this to social media so that you guys can play at home because there were so many possible realities, so many ways that story could have gone, and you can figure them out for yourselves. That's fun stuff. All right. Well, next up here is a short feature highlighting Carl Kiesel and Carrie Nord taking over Daredevil and basically putting him back into the mode of a freewheeling kind of 60s superhero style after many years of dark tales that put Matt Murdock through the literal hell in Hell's Kitchen. Now, Kiesel refers to their throwback take as trying to reclaim the wackiness of the old days, which he describes as like, quote, the John Woo films of their time. <laughs> it's just kind of strange, I guess, just in how stylized and over the top they were. He specifically says his theory is that Stan Lee knew Daredevil would never be as popular as Spider-Man, so he decided just to amp up the craziness of the stories. But did you know anything about this particular creative team on the book? No, I'm, I'm not at all. I don't know... <sighs> I wasn't really doing too much Daredevil at the time, and it might be because it's this silly, fun, swashbuckling version of Daredevil. I don't know. But yeah, it, I, I, even in back issue, Ben, still, I don't really come across this run of, of books at all. Yeah, it seems likely that it just got forgotten, especially, you know, we're not too far away from the Marvel Knights era of Daredevil, so it's just kind of a footnote to Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Quesada and Kevin Smith getting their hands on the character, it seems. I, I laughed out loud while reading this article just because of the part here where it says where they're talking about, you know, they're introducing who the penciler is, talking about, uh, you know, Carrie Nord. <laughs> and it's like, Carrie Nord from Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was like, that's the big book that you tag onto his name? <laughs> yeah, it's just like an amalgam title that wasn't even one of the most popular. And I don't know where Carrie Nord came from if he was like doing independent books, but that is actually what the rest of this issue focuses on mainly is indie publishers. For example, uh, the next thing here is the Wizard Q&A with Dave Sim, and it's mainly focused, as you would imagine, on his journey to get Cerebus to 300 issues, a goal which began, you know, 1977, 1978, and is continuing on. He just passed 200 issues at this point. 
But the funny thing is, this is what is cracking me up. Just like an interview with Dave Sim that Wizard published several years prior to this issue, that particular interview, it just ended abruptly with no final page. And they apologize later. They're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, something got messed up in the printing. But this one also has an error because Sim is being quoted at the bottom of page 61 with an incomplete sentence that's supposed to carry over to the top of page 62. But when you turn the page, it's a completely new paragraph that's totally unrelated so they dropped an entire page it's just hilarious to me that every time dave sim gets into wizard magazine it is cursed there is going to be a problem you know <laughs> are you a, a service reader do you read service did you ever come across that book no not really i mean i definitely remember at this time seeing like one of the big like phone book size collections but it was in black and white and i just i didn't see what it was all about i read about it in wizard but that was about it. Although recently I was finally able to read an issue of Cerebus. It was a reprint from the 80s that I found. It was like reprinting issue number three, I think it was. It was kind of funny, actually, because it was like it was a slightly misogynistic story, which I think these days we know about Dave Sim, but it was a Red Sonia parody named Red Sophia, and she's this warrior who's joining Cerebus on a quest, but in addition to being a fierce warrior, you know, good with the sword, she's also like a motor mouth who won't stop talking and it really annoys him and she's like i'm so good at this and i'm really good at this hey do you like this you know and he's just getting like grumbling to himself the whole time and ultimately he finds a way to ditch her even though she's trying to get him to like her and it's i mean it was just a funny little story but i think ultimately the way it progressed my understanding is that cerebus got pretty high-minded and a little bit more mature i always knew of it by like legend this is like one of the greatest things ever produced. Dave Sim, Dave Sim, Dave Sim. He did 300 issues all by himself. And then there's kind of the uh, the backlash of Dave Sim's personality or whatnot, or the kind of material that's that's put into the series. I mean, I know friends who own original art from the from some of the issues. Oh, okay. And, you know, who like backed a lot of the Kickstarters involved in some of the stuff that they did. They, they like remastered some of like the high society storylines and, and, and things like that. But something that's like 300 issues, that's to me would have to be a commitment. Like I, I feel like I would have to read all 300 issues just turns me off. Like I'm like, ah, I'm good. You know, I, I'm not in for a 300 issue uh, commitment for at all for me on something like this. Yeah, it definitely feels like that is a big hurdle if you want to truly understand the full scope of the work. But, you know, some other creators I don't think ever made it to 300 issues are covered in this next piece called Small Wonders, which is giving the spotlight to eight small pressed writer artists who are fighting the good fight, right? They want to get the word out there about their comics. These are James Owen, who created something called Star Child, Terry S. Wood, who is the mind behind Wandering Star. Are you seeing a theme here, Gabe? <laughs> and then next up here we have a Colleen Duran who has her book A Distant Soil is now going to be distributed by Image Comics thanks to Eric Larson David Lapham and his Stray Bullets book which we've talked about at length in the past uh, Martin Wagner of Hepcats fame and then Terry Moore in his Strangers in Paradise again I've mentioned I'm a big fan of some of his other work Rob Schraub though the wacky mind behind Scud the Disposable Assassin Gabe do you want to tell 
them what his picture looks like in this article. I was going to bring it up that he has the best picture in the article. For people who, who can't see this, full green face paint, green kind of like elvish ears, these really long prosthetic, I don't know if they're supposed to be like eyebrows or uh, antennas or something like that. But you can just tell that type of personality, he just oozes craziness and fun. And that's basically what you get out of Scud the Disposable Assassin. Yeah, and speaking of Scud, you know, one thing that's kind of fun, I just revealed this recently on one of our haul videos on our YouTube channel, but I picked up this multi-pack of Scud the Disposable Assassin issues, which I had actually passed up at another comic book store when I was traveling, because I was like, ah, oh, do I really need individual issues of Scud? But I was like, you know what, I'd love to have these. So I grabbed them, and when I got them home and I opened them up, they were all signed by Rob Schraub. I couldn't believe it. They were actually autographed, which was like, total bonus yeah that's great i got the uh the big uh trade paperback like compendium that has like all the original issues in it that's yeah, such a cool fun series and we thought like we said earlier the video game was this really cool shoot 'em up like very uh earthroom gym style kind of a video game it's a fun concept well it's a really cool story and then rob schwab again from this picture you can tell that guy's a cool guy he's still out there doing really cool stuff uh rick and morty or something i think he's been yeah, well, he and Dan Harmon obviously go way back, and Dan Harmon wrote on Scud, and yeah, I think uh, Rob does a voice on Rick and Morty, and yeah, so he's definitely got a lot more going on in the television world. It feels like comics was just a detour. It was something he was doing for a while. But also, the last person on the list, Paul Pope, no relation, by the way, yeah. <laughs> he's a guy that, he's known for this book called THB, I don't even know what that stands for, or if it stands for something, I've never read read it but his style is very distinct i remember he did this like batman year 100 thing back in the day and i know him best probably uh there was this marvel tales series where they brought in all these independent you know creators and let them do these like one-off stories and he did one about the inhumans it was starring lockjaw and it was just really distinct i remember that one Oh, that's awesome. I, I know him because he does the series called Battling Boy. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that. I just, I don't know what it's about. It's a kind of uh, same idea concept of Captain Marvel Shazam, where it's a, instead of it being like a young boy who says a special word and he turns into superpowered adult, it's a middle-aged guy who turns into like a better, younger version, peak version of himself. Oh, that's an awesome concept. Yeah, it's fantastic. There's like there's like three different books. There's Battling Boy, there's another one involving his sister called Aurora, and another one. The whole series kind of shifts from Battling Boy over to his sister for two more trade paperback books, but it's great. And Paul Pope's art style is just, I'm just slinging ink. Like You can just feel the <laughs> wetness on the paper still. It's just ink and ink and ink all over these books. He's fantastic. But yeah, people out there, check out Battling Boy if you can find it. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, but the last thing here that I wanted to mention briefly is there is a new uh, art tutorial section. You know, it's been a long run of the Crash Course by Greg Capullo, but this time they have a first part uh, of a lesson by Jimmy Palmiotti, teaching you how to ink comics now the funny thing about this is that Gabe as you were preparing for this episode you found a very funny image of Jimmy Palmiotti in the table of contents where he has a revolver at the head of his pet cat and he's basically saying you know turn to my art tutorial or I'll kill this cat and you got quite a response on your Instagram and social media when you posted that 
<laughs> yeah, that is great. That my, my Twitter still blows up because of that of that post. It's still getting retweeted and comments on it and fun stuff like that. So yeah, and I remember that image from years ago when I first got this issue. Because how do you forget Jimmy Pomiati holding a gun to a cat's face and that cat just looks terrified? Yeah, and why did he have that gun just lying around, ready to make that kind of gag, right? <laughs> but uh, I will say he did respond on your thread there saying that his cat died of natural causes. So <laughs> no investigation needs to be launched. But you should mark your calendars because Jimmy Palmiotti is going to be our next guest on The Wizard Files. We are ready for that interview. It is booked and ready to go. And Gabe, you were the person that made that suggestion on social media that gave us the launching pad to just kind of dm jimmy and be like hey let's make this happen our listeners want to hear it he was more than happy to say yeah i'll talk about garib and all the uh, very chubby relationship that he and joe casada had with wizard magazine for many many years so look forward to that coming up but gabe just big thank you for giving us that push Awesome. I'm glad that worked out. Jimmy Palmiotti is a great guy. He's got tons, tons of great stories. And you can't go wrong with somebody who's married to Amanda Connor. So, yeah, I guess that speaks pretty highly of him there. I will mention just one more thing, and that is the fact that we're probably not going to get deep into the origin story of Jimmy Palmiotti. How'd you break into comics? What were your favorite things? All that. Just because that was covered very well by our friends at the Dollar Bin Bandits podcast recently. They had a wonderful interview with Jimmy Palmiotti. So, you should go check out their youtube channel just search dollar bin bandits and it's a very very fun conversation and they touch very briefly on wizard but obviously we're gonna go really deep into that world because like i say this was like you know decades long relationship with the magazine there's gotta be some stories there Last thing for the table of contents, though, there is an interview in this issue with Pamela Anderson, and, uh, you know, it's not that interesting. It's not really about the comics, right? It's about her saying, yeah, well, I wanted to break out of the role of the nice girl, and I wanted to play tough, and, you know, she mentions how, you know, she had to do a lot of her own stunts because no other stunt woman has her proportions and things like that. So it's fine, I guess, but there wasn't much to discuss, although I will note that it's basically the same interview. It's the same sound bites as were featured in the Bad Girls special, which was a cover of Pamela Anderson as Barb Wire. And she actually makes the cover of this one as well, just like in a little circle up in the corner. I guess they figured they would sell a few more issues that way. But yeah, so I, I just thought that was interesting. They're like, yeah, we'll just print it twice. Who's going to care? It's Pamela Anderson. People want as much as they can get. <laughs> that works. But speaking of those comics making it to the big screen, it's time to flip on the projector and get into some Heroes in Motion. So for Heroes in Motion, the top story in the trailer park section is the great and powerful Generation X, the TV series, reporting on the speculation that the recent TV movie on Fox might be added to the network lineup. Wizard quotes a New World Pictures executive, Bruce Allen, who says, quote, it's very much alive at Fox. There's a good chance for it to continue. We could possibly take it somewhere else, but we feel Fox is kind of our family. 
And of course, unfortunately, family disappoints you sometimes. And so the Generation X TV series is just a fantasy that our old buddy Steven and I have in the dream dimension every night, imagining what could have been. <sighs> Missed opportunity there for sure. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like it's one of those things that if they had given it, you know, a few episodes to try it out, a half season order, you know, they could have recast or they could have retooled it a little bit and maybe brought down the cost, I guess. I'm sure that was the main factor, even though everybody says it looks cheap, it looks terrible, but even just by TV standards of that day, you know, but, oh, well, we have what we have, our memories. <laughs> But what does get a second chance at life, which I can't believe, is the fact that the Savage Dragon is reportedly returning with a second season on the USA Network and a totally new look, says producer Scott De La Casas, quote, We're spending more money on it this season, and it will look considerably better. It will have a little bit more of an NYPD Blue film noir style to it. So I actually went on the Peacock app. Yep, you can actually stream both seasons of the Savage Dragon cartoon series on Peacock. I watched a few episodes just back to back from each season to see the comparison. It definitely is more of like an an anime style the second season it does feel a little bit darker the main thing i noticed just in the character design differences that they gave savage dragon fangs in the second season and it looks weird like before he just looked like a big green guy with a fin on his head now he looks like he wouldn't be able to speak properly with those fangs sticking out of his mouth but i uh, gave were you watching a lot of savage dragon at this time I don't remember the second season really or any. I remember watching it. I do remember USA. I do remember watching it. I think I'm going to say it was like on Sunday mornings or something like that. Um, uh, but unfortunately, I think it was just my mind never took it in and saved it into my brain much at all. But I do want to check it out on. I just don't remember liking it or the art being kind of odd because I remember there's some things where it's like, you know, Savage Dragon can't fit in a car because he's got that giant fin. So why is he driving a car? And the car would be like this really weird size. And it has some really different animation concerns with that series, but... You know, what can you do? It's a USA Network. There's also a rumor floating around this section a little bit later that says that they might be trying to shop around the Wildcats cartoon to get a second season on the USA Network or some other place. But of course, we know that didn't happen. Still one of my favorite animation uh, opening theme songs as well. Yeah, you posted that for all to see on your social media recently. And I was just like, you know what? Given that a second listen, it is very fun. Hard to forget. I mean, it's ultimate 90s, but it was it was definitely, you know, something distinct. Yeah, it's fun. But what's our next bit of Hollywood rumor here? All right. Uh, of course, what would Heroes in Motion be without a Batman and Robin casting update? Arnold Schwarzenegger is finally confirmed to be playing Mr. Freeze in the fourth Bat film. The Terminator meets the refrigerator is how <laughs> director Joe Schumacher puts it. <laughs> that shows how much he took it serious. At one point, both Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone were rumored to be in the running for the role. But Stallone refutes this, saying, I was actually as surprised as anyone to read the reports. I had no intentions of ever doing that film. <laughs> No comment from Bruce Willis, who would likely allow his image to be digitally inserted into a modern day re-edit of the film for the right fee. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> that is definitely, I feel like, how it would go. 
Is, is that a thing? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's like this big deal thing because he did some sort of like Russian vodka commercial or something where they just put his face on another actor's body. And now, as I understand it, he's starting to apply that to film. So basically, like, it's just your image. If you are a popular enough and iconic actor, you could just say, yeah, you can put my face on there, but I'm not going to show up on set for this thing. You know, with all the deep fakes, like it is a possibility with that software. Well, there you go. Didn't he retire from acting? Did he have some kind of health issue? Yeah, well, I think that's the point, is it's kind of like, like, I don't have to actually act anymore, but I can still get paid. So he's taken this, you know, it's just like a new era of filmmaking. Use my face and I don't have to, you know, do any work. Yeah, but finally here, uh, we have a casting call, which I do have to mention, you know, you're talking about how big your Jimmy Palmiotti post was uh, getting around on the internet. Well, our posting of the casting call for last issue for a live action The Simpsons movie was getting a lot of people rankled a little bit there. You know, there was specifically the casting of Fisher Stevens as Apu. And as we mentioned on the mini episode, that was just problematic, you know, times two, maybe times 10 at this point. So a lot of people were retweeting and commenting on that. But I think this casting call probably going to be a little bit better received because we are talking about a live action Watchmen film. Yes, set in 1996. These are Wizards ideas for who could fill the roles of those iconic characters created by Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore. And so why don't you take it away here, Gabe? Who was the first choice? All right, so first up, uh, we got Warshak being played by NYPD Blues, David Caruso. I think this one comes down to the fact that there's just not a lot of redheads in Hollywood, are there? Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, like, I think he has proven that he could be very intense and kind of unhinged. So that works very well for that era. Yeah, I think he did a good job matching it. I mean, that works. I think David Caruso probably could have pulled it off back then. But next up here, interesting choice for the character of Night Owl. Wizard says, for this part, we needed someone kind of dumpy, but still able to give the bad guys a scare. That's why we chose William Hurt for broadcast news in altered states. He's got the floppy hair and everything. Hmm, William Hurt. When I looked at this, I thought at first I glanced at it, I thought it was Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap. Well, that's Scott Bakula's secret identity is William Hurt. He just puts on <laughs> glasses and he transforms. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if this one works for me. Only because I think of William Hurt as being pretty confident and intense and to me like the Night Owl character out of the costume the whole point is he's kind of milk toast he's kind of a dork he's just kind of sad and I don't know if I see William Hurt playing that believably for me I hear you. Yeah, I don't think so either. But he, you know, he's got the look. He's got glasses and floppy hair. So let's put his image in for Night Owl. The other option I see going with an unknown or relatively unknown. I don't know, Gabe, if you watched Saved by the Bell, the college years. Of course I did. Okay. Well, do you remember the professor on that? And he was like dating Kelly. He was oh, like the rival okay. for her affections with Zach. Like that guy, he's just got the look to me. He, he feels like he could look heroic in the costume, but also be a little bit more subdued, a little bit more kind of like, ah, I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. I thought you were going to say Zach Morris or something. Yeah, I don't think Mark Paul Gosselaar is quite up for this uh, dramatic a production. <laughs> uh, next up, what do we got here? Uh, Dennis Farron from uh, Crime Story as the comedian. I think it's actually Dennis Farina is how you pronounce that. Is that how you pronounce it? Okay, I thought he was going to be J. Jonah Jameson on here, too, with that mustache. <laughs> I can definitely see that. They cast him for the mustache. Speaking of which, you know, my alternate casting, I think, would just be Tom Selleck. Let him take it in a different direction. He's usually the hero. Now he can be kind of a scumbag, you know? 
<laughs> for Ozymandias, they wanted Robert Redford, and I don't think you can do better than that. He just seems like a, a guy who has it all figured out, but then can also just flip on the smile and the charm. Like, that's really strong. Yeah, that's a great pick for that. I, I don't know if Robert Redford would have done it back then, but who knows? And then next for uh, good old Dr. Manhattan, we got JAG actor uh, David James Elliott um, to play Dr. Manhattan. I don't know. I guess Dr. Manhattan is kind of that stoic, separated from society, almost emotionalist kind of character. And I, I, don't, I'm, I was never a big JAG fan, so I'm not exactly sure if he had the kind of acting chops to even kind of, you know, pull that off. Um, but I don't know. Maybe he looks good naked in blue. <laughs> That's, that's what I was going to say. It just feels like somebody at Wizard really wanted to see this guy painted up like a sexy Smurf. <laughs> so with the, the Zack Snyder film, here's a quick little anecdote. Uh, my boss at the time, he saw that movie in the very front row of the theater. Oh, no. Was, yeah, when Dr. Manhattan came on, it was just it was just all in, in his face. <laughs> Well, I, I saw it in IMAX with my older brother when that came out. And uh, yes, I can confirm that it was a little disconcerting, uncomfortable in the theater. But getting off that topic, uh, next up here for the Silk Spectre 2, you know, Lori Juspizik, they wanted none other than Demi Moore. Demi Moore, I feel like, has got that locked in. That is just a perfect look. Yeah, that's a great, great one there. Jennifer Connelly would have been a good choice, too. Wow, you know, actually, that's pretty strong. Uh, Jennifer Connelly also in anything. I feel like, yes, uh, I would like to have more Jennifer Connelly in my Watchmen movie. But how about for the original Silk Spectre here? Lori's mom, we got Anne Bancraft from Malice and Home for the Holidays. No idea who this actor is. So surprisingly, what they're not mentioning here is that she was in The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. She was Mrs. Robinson. Oh. So it kind of works from the perspective, of, oh, she was a sex symbol back in the day, but now she's older type thing. Uh, but moving off of that, uh, we have for Moloch, they want Roddy McDowell. And I think that is fine because I love Roddy McDowell. It would work. But honestly, I feel like even at this time with just a little bit of makeup, you put Matt Frewer as Moloch. He's just got the look he was just put on this earth to play that character that was like the one thing from the Zack Snyder film where I was just like wow you nailed it and then uh, last up here good old uh, Hollis Mason they got Charleston Heston on here from Planet of the Apes uh, to play that role I mean he's a fantastic actor especially in, in that age of himself uh, I think he could definitely play that that role I would like to see him you know I would like to have seen that happen for sure. Plus, yeah, I just think given his history on film, his legacy, people would 100% buy, oh, he's a retired superhero, a retired crime fighter. It just fits perfectly. But I think it's time that we got out of the movie theaters and into the toy aisles with a little bit of merch madness. start off with a little bit more correspondence here from the Magic Words column, because as you'll recall, we had Jim McLaughlin giving out the Bunny Award each issue for basically what he figures is his favorite letter of each month. And this one comes from a concerned Kiwi Toys employee. It's titled, Free the Toys. Says, Dear Jim, I'm really peeved. I was at work one day working my cool job at a KB toy and hobby store in Florida. Anywho, I'm an avid toy buyer. I use the term buyer because unlike some or maybe 
most people. I'm not just a collector who's out to make a buck. The collector mentality had always semi-bothered me, but not until today did I feel compelled to write this letter. I buy the Star Wars and Spot action figures, and yes, I open them. Some dork came into the store looking for a C-3PO. I told him we were sold out, but mentioned that I had one at home. He asked if I opened it, and I said, I did. He got all flustered and said I shouldn't be allowed to buy such toys because I don't recognize their true value. After which I told him to bite me. Well, I own a lot of comics too, and you know what? I read them. Last time I checked, toys were made to be played with and comics were made to be read. I will go on buying toys and opening toys and buying comics and reading comics. Jonathan Arena, North Miami Beach, Florida. So that's really interesting, taking a stand there against the collector mentality. And I gotta say, I've never heard of KB Toys also added a and hobby to the end of it. I used to manage a KB Toy store, and I am not aware that that was ever part of the branding. So was this some, like, illegal operation down in Florida? Who knows? But, uh, Gabe, what did Jim McLaughlin have to say to this concerned citizen? I am with you, my brother man. The whole collector mentality is occasionally strange, but nowhere more so than with collectible toys. I mean, you can use a comic for its intended purposes, reading, and it can still be collectible. But if you use a toy for what it's for, what it's for playing with it, it suddenly loses a large portion of its collectible value. Pretty silly. By the way, you may notice we've added a toy price guide to our pages. Why? Because there was a huge call for it amongst our readers. The collector mentality exists, and it is big. I hope this guide and others like it don't unduly influence people and I hope they keep playing with their toys, much like I do with my cool as hell Fin Fang Froom. That toy is great. I threw away the box. I mean, it's kind of weird that Jim mentions the price guide now, like it's a new thing for the action figure price guide. They've had that since the early days of the magazine. But of course, Toy Fair was just around the corner. It was in development at this time, I'm almost certain. So I have a feeling that it was uh, something that was just on his mind with the editorial team. But this begs the question, because we were talking up top, Gabe, about slabbing your comics, right? Getting your comic books graded. But a lot of people are are starting to do that with action figures as well and i collect vhs tapes and they're doing it there which is ridiculous but gabe tell me have you sent any action figures in to be graded at this point no i have not fallen down that rabbit hole of things um i still buy new collectible toys like the new gargoyles line it's probably my favorite and yeah i open those bad boys up and set them up in my office yeah, I mean, I'm definitely on this guy's side in terms of opening up toys and playing with them. I don't really buy that many new collectible toys myself, but it is a situation where I have a lot of vintage ones, and I have several sealed vintage action figures on my walls just because I'm such a huge fan of the card art, and, you know, the plastic bubble does play a part in keeping that pristine. But I would never, you know, send away to seal my toys. You know, it just, it doesn't appeal to me in any way, and I, I also, I prefer when I'm collecting toys just i like to buy them loose i like to find them in played with condition because it just feels like there's a history to them they could have been in my toy box as a kid you know but still i mean if you got like something like i don't know like some of the original star wars toys that's not the kind of thing you're going to open up and play with that's i think things like that are okay to you know grade and set away or something but yeah if you get transformer toys those ones are impossible for me to not open the fun of that is putting those things together and transforming them around speaking of star wars and kenner though gabe you know they were still producing toys at this point they were trying to put some new product on the market so why don't you tell us about this new series of figures all right, uh, coming up here, Kenner is releasing a new line called Batman Total Justice, 
with a storyline involving the Justice League teaming up to counter Darkseid's advancing technology. Earth's mightiest heroes, somebody called the Marvel Legal Department, <laughs> are equipped with fractal tech gear, which enhances their powers. Uh, these armor accessories had ridiculous justifications, with text declaring, the flash's speed is intensifying with leg turbines and <laughs> arm armor thrusters, while Green Lantern comes equipped with a shoulder sensor to help him locate enemies. Wizard can't help mocking these enhancements. Aquaman, getting what seems to be the short end of the weapon stick, is only furnished with snap-on back spikes. Mere back spikes to fight the mighty and powerful dark side. Yeah, right. To keep Aquaman from being eaten by a monster, Clam is more like it. Man, just this whole idea of leg turbines, it cracks me up because it's just like they haven't done a nice sculpt of so many of these heroes for so long. Just put them out there like they are. Or just the idea of what, what enhancements does Green Lantern need? He has one of the most powerful items in the in the universe that can create whatever he wants. So, Well, how else is he going to find those enemies to fight, Gabe? His ring doesn't have uh, enemy-locating GPS. Oh, well, we explained it that way. That makes total sense. But ridiculous armor aside, did this total justice line get your attention at all in 1996? They do sound familiar to me. I think I might have actually had that Green Lantern as much as I'm giving it nonsense. Um, but I did. I was a big Green Lantern fan back then, but I know I, I was picking that one up for sure. I definitely did not. I mean, I remember seeing them on shelves, but I just wasn't big into DC at that moment. Uh, but I did recently at Goodwill, just like a grab bag of random action figures, get the Aquaman figure. Sadly, he was missing both his harpoon hand oh, no. and his back spikes. So Stay away from those giant clams. <laughs> Kenner was actually super obsessed with Darkseid, though, because he is also a part of the new animated Adventures of Superman toy line, which features six different Superman action figures. These are Capture Net Superman, Deep Dive Superman, maybe gonna go fight a giant clam, help out Aquaman, uh, Krypton Shield Superman, Neutron Star Superman, Solar Energy Superman, and Wizard's favorite Quick Change Superman, quote, which changes Clark Kent to Superman. Superman in a split second. And I gotta admit, that one actually does sound pretty cool. That feels like the one that fanboys would be most interested in. That is kind of neat. But wait! There's more! Yes, three deluxe figures of the Man of Steel. There was Speeding Bullet Superman with a glider launcher, and Techno Armor Superman with a projectile snare, and a Vision Blast Superman with light-up eyes and chest emblem. Again, that feels like the one, it matches his power set, you know, the actual heat vision, so I think if I was going to pick up any of these deluxe figures, it would have been Vision Blast Superman. I was a sucker for any toy that lit up back then. One Finally, though, collectors could also get an exclusive Clark Kent figure when they bought the Clark Kent's Matrix Conversion Coupe, which sounds an awful lot like the Bruce Wayne custom coupe from the Batman line. So, hmm, Kenner, reusing a few ideas there. Yeah, they were notorious for that. It is well documented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I do have a funny story about the Superman the Animated Series toy line. So in high school, my buddy Dave had just the standard Superman action figure. And he was not a comic book guy. He was not an action figure guy. So I was just like, Dave, why do you have this toy? And why do you carry it around with you all the time? He's like, well, it looks like James Vanderbeek, you know, Dawson from Dawson's Creek. Because he just had like the chiseled chin, just like the face looked like James Vanderbeek. So he called him Super Vanderbeek. And his running. <laughs> gag was we'd be out somewhere and something go wrong you'd be like super vanderbeek to the rescue and i was like oh dave super vanderbeek just color james vanderbeek's hair dark black and then you could be superman sure make it happen and on the higher end of collectibles is a swamp thing statue based on the vertical comics design which is retailing for 175 dollars at the time Oof. also a green lantern watch with a genuine black leather band retailing for $39.95. I have to mention about this watch. So our former co-host, Steven Sapelis, he is a super fan of Kyle Rayner, and he said he remembered reading about this watch in Wizard back in the day, and he has been searching for decades, trying to track it down. He's just never found one for sale on eBay. At the time, he didn't know where to buy it, so it is like his holy grail. So if anybody's got a lead on the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern watch, just give us a heads up because Steven really needs it this Christmas. On the small press side, Graffiti Designs is releasing a bone playing card deck and a magnet set to put on your refrigerator. Plus, Mike Allred's mom is personally stitching together Madman ragdolls for fans, which can be ordered directly from Mama Allred for just $34.95. Now, speaking of holy grails, it is well documented that I am a big Mike Allred Madman fan. This is something I remember reading in Wizard. This is very big uh, for those of us who wanted these collectibles but never got them. This is just so cool. This cute little stuffed animal. That it says here that it was originally created for her granddaughter, and then they started, you know, not mass producing but putting them out for order so that fans could get it and they're like a super rare collectible because yeah how many people were ordering this custom made doll but i need this for my collection occasionally i've seen them come up on ebay for uh, exorbitant prices but if anybody's got a lead on one or you're looking to part with it let me know because man they are just the cutest little thing I wonder if his mom's still around. That's that's really cool. If she handmade all those things, that's awesome. Yeah, can you imagine? She's got to be in her nineties now, and you send that money order to the address listed here, and just be like, "Get to work, old lady. I need my Madman ragdoll." <laughs> Put mom in the sweatshop and start making those things. <laughs> Well, maybe the next item here is a little less labor-intensive, and that is the fact that Marvel is releasing a set of CD-ROM comics, which they'd already done for, like, Spider-Man and, I think, Iron Man, Fantastic Four at some point, but this time around it's for X-Men, The Phoenix Saga, and Silver Surfer, but they are said to include a live video introduction by Stan Lee, video animation clips, music, trivia games, and more. So that was a true multimedia package there, but speaking of Marvel games, in the electronic space, Capcom's Marvel Super Heroes fighting game and upcoming Super Nintendo home console version are highlighted in the junk drawer section, with the character designs being praised while managing to throw some shade at a certain creator of Deadpool. So Wizard explains that they quote, couldn't find out who did the artwork of the game, but Marvel should sign him up because he'd be a huge improvement over Rob Lamefeld. <laughs> 
So it makes you think, maybe Rob did have a legitimate bone to pick with Wizard after all, because that's kind of a, a low blow. And also, Rob Lamefeld. How did we not come up with that when we were trying to come up with alternate names? Maybe it was too on the nose. Yeah, it doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Rob Islands. Finally, in the world of trading cards, good old Fleer Skybox is releasing the 100-card Marvel Vision set, which features art based on the animated series for Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Iron Man. Each pack even includes a mini magazine inside. So for those who are followers of the Retro Network, you know that I've been involved in the Wax Pack Flashback series on YouTube on TRN TV, opening up vintage packs of cards. And so when I saw this notice in here, I was like, wow, Marvel Vision trading cards. I have never heard of those before. So I went around and bought a pack just because they were relatively cheap in this uh, current collectibles landscape that we have. But it just, it was fascinating to me because I remember, you know, originally, Originally, the only place you could get Spider-Man and X-Men, the animated series, trading cards. And even then, I think it might have just been the uh, Spider-Man cards for the Fox Kids Network, you know, and the tick was in there, Bobby's World and stuff. So this time around, I'm very curious to open up a pack and I will put it on our YouTube channel just to give you an idea of what was involved in the series because I have zero recollection of Marvel Vision trading cards. It just felt like the trend of superhero trading cards really had run out of gas by this point. This is great because I work from home, so I may or may not be watching the Fantastic Four cartoon in the background. (laughs) We cannot confirm at this time. Well, speaking of comic book animated series and trading cards, two guys that knew how to get their comic book creations out into the world of merchandise and media, it's time to rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. Holy hell, Spawn! Spawn is celebrating its 50th issue! And in addition to Wizard publishing a special tribute edition, which we just covered recently on a bonus episode, Todd McFarlane has an entire Spawn month plan to celebrate. Of course, the biggest excitement is around Todd returning to Pencil and Ink issue 50, which will reveal Spawn's new face! Bo Smith of McFarlane Productions says, quote, McFarlane kept the sketches of the new face with him at all times. None of us in the office have even seen it yet. Now, in conjunction with the new face reveal, retailers who order a certain amount of issue number 50 will receive a limited edition McFarlane Toys action figure of Spawn featuring the new face. Now, here's the deal. I looked at this face. It's just the same face. I think literally all they did was take out the stitching, but it's really not that big a deal because Ty Diaz, who was on our Spawn bonus episode, he has this figure's collection and he sent me over a picture and I was like, yeah, that looks the same. Big whoop, Todd. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to mention that because when I was reading this article, I was like, oh, wow, because I have the uh, Spawn compendium issues that have like 50 issues in each one. So I flipped through it and I'm looking at it now and I couldn't tell. I was like, what what changed? Is it just, is that all it was? Did they just untied his face and it just became a little bit more kind of skull-like? What a flare out of, a, of an announcement. New face, uh, I, I guess. That's why Todd is the king of the hype. But uh, what do we have next here, Gabe? All right, since we've already reported on Jim Lee returning to Wildcats, kind of, during the Wizards News segment, we have more Alan Moore at Image News, as the veteran comic scribe is now going to take over Supreme over at Extreme Studios, starting with issue 41. Uh, Alan Moore says, 
some time ago, somebody decided to sweep all the junk and absurdity out of the superhero closet, and somehow all that awe and wonder went with it. With Supreme, I intend to sweep all that marvelous junk back in. This begins a very celebrated run, which was pure Silver Age fun, right? It really was. I've heard about this Alan Moore on Supreme run for years, and I remember it gets a lot of play in Wizard in the issues to come. And so I finally got to read like four or five of them, and they are so much fun. Like, it is so great the way he tells these stories because he it's set like in the modern day, but then he's kind of of going backwards in his history so when they do the flashback stories there by Rick Veach and he is doing them you know in kind of the Kurt Swan Superman style and make no mistake these are just Superman stories with a name swap for the Superman character and the villains and the supporting cast and all of that but they are so well crafted you're just like yeah I've heard it said these are the best Superman stories ever told I'm like yeah pretty much and the stories are just packed with like the history you know the goofiness of that era but they are so entertaining and i think if we needed that relief from just all the deep dark grim and gritty stuff that started in the late 80s and up to this point it felt like now yeah let's celebrate the fun of comics it's very cool i've always heard great things about the supreme run and i i can never find them for like cheap like they are pretty expensive issues and i've even heard rob liefeld on his podcast talk about how he hired alan moore to do this and he wanted to do a, a storyline called judgment day or judgment something like this something to do with judgment and alan moore came back with a uh, a court battle <laughs> and it was basically according to rob liefeld uh it was basically a superhero version of the oj simpson trial <laughs> What? I don't know about that. That sounds like you might be pushing it a little bit too far of the pop culture of the time. So yeah, I'm going to pick up these issues, but it's, it, they're hard to find. Everywhere I look, they're like 25, 30 bucks or something. Finally here at Jim Lee News, and very exciting to me, was the announcement of a Gen 13 video game rumored to be in development at Electronic Arts, which had the rights to produce it for the PlayStation, the Saturn, and the Nintendo 64. Although at this time it was called the Nintendo Ultra, which I didn't remember. But Jim Lee says, quote, I have every confidence that they could deliver a fast action game that captures the look and feel of the Gen 13 comic book series, as well as the humor and playfulness of the characters, to which Wizard can't help but add, we here at Wizard hope that they could also capture the female character's ability to wear almost nothing at all while ridding the world of evil. <laughs> Yeah, I know we got a Wildcats game, a Gen 13 game, a nice little like beat 'em up probably would have been excellent. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, this could have been the thing that got me back into console gaming because I dropped off with Super Nintendo. I was never super deep into the world of the video games after that point. But this is something where if they could have done it maybe like in the style of like Battletoads meets Comic Zone, where you just have like a lot of like little Easter eggs and fun jokes and just goofiness in the characters because that's what I loved about the comic was just the fun just like jim lee said there ah oh, man i i might have been you know dedicated uh, to this game and doing videos on youtube about it all the time i'm doing another playthrough of gen 13 guys <laughs> Well, that brings us to our tally. So if you can believe it here, Jim and Todd are tied up in this issue, each with four mentions, which brings our running total to Jim Lee, 325 mentions, Todd McFarlane, 338. Uh, my boy Jim is catching up. You better watch out, Todd. He's on your heels, son. Whoa, hey Gabe, guess who just walked through the doors here at Wizards HQ? Michael, how was the fair, buddy? It was good. I, I didn't find the top cow. <laughs> There's actually a 
county fair in South Jersey called Cowtown. And it's like this giant flea market slash like bull riding thing. And I went all the way there to hopefully I could find the top cow. And it was just a bunch of rednecks selling junk out of the trunks of their cars. So I was sort of like, well, all right, I guess I'll turn around and come home and be back just in time for tonight's top 10 list. And I'm really excited about this one because I actually read it and I was like, ooh, this is right up my alley. Yes, indeed. So it sounds like we're ready to get into Turok's Top 10. This is perfect for me. This is the top 10 ways... Old age has affected the DC superheroes in Kingdom Come. And number 10 says, Shazam lost the support of three gods and now is only known as Ham. (laughs) Yeah, you lose a few letters there, that's all you're left with. The big red cheese? No, the big red ham. But uh, number nine here, Spectre gets Alzheimer's, starts punishing sock puppets. <laughs> it was bound to happen. Number eight, Bat Depends. <laughs> dark day in Batman's life. It's like, oh boy. They would be branded with the bat symbol because that's how Bruce Wayne rolls. Yeah. You know how you, the diapers had the little Velcro wings that hold them on? The, the wings be just two little bat pins of some sort that would just hold it in place. Yes, definitely a battering-shaped safety pins holding that on somehow. Number seven, Superman, now known as Trying Really Hard Man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does that just feel like it's straight out of Mad Magazine? But number six here... Impulse, now no pulse. <laughs> Poor Bart Allen. Number five on the dad jokes top ten list. <laughs> Flash now wears Rockport shoes and takes it easy when the sun is out. Rockports are very comfortable. I'm not, I don't know where they're knocking that. I mean, this is 40, you know? That's what I have no idea what Rockports are. Are those like Crocs or what? No, they're like a low-end shoe men would wear to work if they worked in like a business casual style office with your Dockers khakis kind of thing. Michael Kennedy, king of casual Friday at the office. Hey, I don't like tying my shoes anymore. I like a good slip-on. Yeah, you can't go wrong with those slip-on vans, I'll tell you Man, that much. fantastic. Just get right in there. Especially I got, I, I got high arches, I got orthotics in my shoes. It's just too much work to tie your shoes anymore. Oh, my sciatica's acting Oh, up. exactly. <laughs> Put my back out, just putting my sneakers on. Okay, number four, which I find kind of counterintuitive, but it says, Florida is now the safest state in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Did a killer croc go and establish dominance, get rid of all the alligators? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Number three, Green Lantern admits sex is like trying to shoot pool with a rope. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I mean, that that's Green Lantern on a Viagra commercial is what that is. That's a night owl joke, too. Yeah. Oh, wow, you're right. Finally, you got the really gross one, and I didn't have to do it. Yeah, karma finally caught up with me. It's only fair. Number two, Batman keeps forgetting the Riddler's questions. The Riddler, the answers. Not the most compelling storytelling, yeah. Okay, I... 
jinxed myself because <laughs> I still get the worst one. <laughs> oh, number one. Two words. Amazonian menopause. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Well, there you go. Definitely some legitimate comedy this time around. I will say, not a not a bad list. Pretty good. It could have been more offensive. I'm bummed that I missed the Watchmen casting call, though. That looks like a pretty good one. There's some weird casting on this, but I'm I'm real quick, and and you can cut this out if you want, or you can leave it in. I don't care. David Caruso as Rorschach is pretty good, but this William Hurt photograph looks like Steve Jobs. I was like, is that Steve Jobs that they're casting as Night Owl? And who did you say you thought he looked like, Gabe? I thought it was Scott Bakula from Quantum Leap. I can see that. I can see that. John Hurt. He looks like everybody but himself. I do like the Robert Redford Ozymandias. That's pretty good. That's really good. Well, we don't have time to relitigate the entire casting call here, Michael. Maybe next time you will stay on the mic instead of going to milk the top cow. But Gabe, thank you so much for joining us here. It was a very fun discussion. Let's just put it that way. Sorry you missed out there, Michael. But Gabe, tell people where they can find you on the internet to see what you're doing these days. So everybody feel free. Follow me on Instagram, Gabe Loves 90s Comics. And on YouTube, you can find me on the Lords of the Longbox show on Thursdays, which is the Shakers show, which is the best top 11 countdown of the highest selling comic books as aggregated through a cover price. So it's not your typical speculation show where it's like you need to buy this because there might show up in a movie it's more along the ideas of that's interesting why did that 1940s crime pre-code horror book go for fifteen thousand dollars fun stuff like that so find me instagram youtube lords of the long box feel free to say hi i'll talk to everybody yeah check that out and check us out michael you showed up just in time to help plug our social media so on instagram you can find us at wizards underscore comics on twitter it's at wizards comics and i will tell you adam is very very good at getting back to you he also posts tons of content he's way better at it than i am and it's always entertaining i'm like oh we talked about that on the podcast i forgot (laughs) michael only shows up to get razzed about not knowing that kenny g was a saxophonist not a clarinet player it's a clarinet. It's I never even heard of an alto saxophone or whatever. <laughs> you got schooled. I'm surprised you guys even listen to Kenny G. What's going on here? Well, Michael has excellent taste in action figure soundscape, playtime, soundtracks. You got to go back to episode 57 to get the full story on that one. Fantastic. Uh, and if you want to be fantastic in our book, why not leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word, retweet, do the best you can to get your friends involved in the Wizards universe. Of course, you can also get yourself some Wizards, the podcast guide to comics merch, get a t-shirt, get a mug, whatever you need, just to spread the word about the podcast. We're not in it for the money, just the promotion. Be doing us a favor. And of course, you can also check out our YouTube page. We're always bringing you a new haul video or showing you something special from the history of Wizard and 90s comics. So subscribe to Wizards Podcast on YouTube. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. <laughs>